What is good, guys and gals, and welcome to the Films and Pixels podcast, episode 14. I am your host, Afif. Thanks for tuning in. Now, before I start, I just want to quickly acknowledge that last time at episode 13, I felt like I wasn't always clear and concise with my words. At times, I, f- like I sounded like I was stuttering a lot, like Porky Pig. And you know what happens? I just get a little stressed in front of the camera. I'm not always used to in front of the camera. I know I should be up like 14 episodes by now. So it just takes practice and time. Plus, you know, it's like, you know, I record my episodes in the late evenings. And like last week, it was just, you know, after Iftar, you know, it's still early in Ramadan. You get a little tired from fasting. So it, it just, you know, it's normal. But, you know, I will get better at all of that. But now for the topics for this episode, some interesting stuff I we want to discuss and talk about. I want to mention Elon Musk now being more involved in Twitter as he bought a share of the company, plus the fallout regarding the Will Smith Oscar slap continues. Uh, a serious situation with Ezra Miller, his future with Warner Brothers regarding their film franchise is now in doubt. I want to give my thoughts on why I think Sony's PlayStation 3 console legacy continues to be damaged over time, especially regarding the efforts Xbox are making. Um, You know, some quotes from a recent Sam Raimi interview he had with Fandango just a month before uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness release. And uh, a funny TikTok clip uh, regarding Monster Hunter Rise. It's just kind of funny. I found it, so I thought I'd just share it towards the end but yeah before i go forward uh if you haven't before check out previous episodes on youtube and even all the other audio platforms please i encourage you to subscribe to this channel it's just an independent channel it helps me a lot your comments in the comment section below helps with the engagement it's always welcome yeah i'll make sure to put uh make patreon more active as well so if you want to donate to patreon that's always great. And um, yeah, don't, again, if you're not watching on YouTube, thanks for listening on the audio streaming services. You know, I've opened it more platforms with Amazon as well. So don't forget to listen there. Of course, still on Spotify, Deezer, Anagami, Google Podcasts, and so forth. So yeah, again, thank you so much. And from here on out, let's get going. It's going to be exciting. When we think of the name Elon Musk, a lot of descriptions come to mind nowadays. Billionaire, join the list of, you know, Jeff Bezos and Tim Cook and so forth. Tech enthusiast, innovator, you know, head of Tesla, bringing his Tesla branded vehicles to space. Someone with children with names that with strange spellings that we can't even say or pronounce and also someone who's very vocal on twitter who's not afraid or shy at all to say anything that comes to mind on twitter which brings him to this subject of both social media platform and the man himself now intertwined together just recently in fact uh, elon musk himself bought a share of twitter Uh, To be exact, he did buy a stake of 9.2% of Twitter, worth 
$2.89 billion very recently, which did send the company's uh, stock price soaring all the way up. Now, Musk did purchase exactly $73 billion, 486,938 Twitter shares. So, like I said, at that percentage of 9.2%, that which is like a passive stake in the company. So he's now like, uh, which now makes him the largest shareholder on Twitter. Now, it's interesting how this is like one week, this whole uh, big move acquisition happened. Just as Musk was just tweeting to his 80 plus million followers, um, you know, free speech is essential to a functioning de democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? He did. Now, this question came from a poll. Yes or no. So based on the results, as of March 25, 70.4% said no, while 29.6% while said yes. So what does that mean? Uh, at least according to Musk, when he was asking if Twitter allows free speech principles, he believes that Twitter doesn't, which says a lot on, on his, um, you know, from his own opinions. And you know what he says does matter. It carries a lot of weight. I mean, before I go on, I remember one of his most well-known tweets was him saying, you signal. And since then, like millions and millions of people have converted from WhatsApp to signal based on WhatsApp privacy, data sharing policy. Including myself, I mean, because of him, I mean, I have signals, so yeah, like his, um, you know, what he says, his words do carry weight. Now, because of that poll, you know, um, one of the CEOs of Twitter was saying, you know, the consequences of this poll will be important, so please uh, think carefully, you know. Now, a day later, uh, Musk tweeted that Twitter's failure to adhere to free speech's principles fundamentally undermines democracy. So again, like, he believes that Twitter not really allowing free speech undermines democracy and the screen, and the, as I like to call it, screen culture, internet culture, however you want to put it, right? So yeah, this happened like after uh, Musk buying, just before he was buying a stake in the company, even an analyst on CNBC believed that because of this move in purchasing a stake, it could eventually lead to some sort of buyout. So, but I mean, that's not, I don't think that'll happen. I don't believe that'll happen. I'm pretty sure Twitter boards don't want that. But I mean, part of the reason why he's involved, he just simply wants to bring change to a platform he cares about, he's very active on. And plus, he's made no secret to another poll question that he's asked. Um, I do have it somewhere. Do you want an edit button? Now, while the answers are yes and no, if you read the tweet carefully, it's purposely misspelled. Yes, as in Y-S-E, and then no with on, O-N. Based on the answers, as of April 5, 73.6 said yes while 26.4% said no. And I'm fine with the idea of an edit button. After all, all the major social media platforms do have edit buttons by now. 
I personally myself would like an edit button on Twitter. Sometimes when I post things, you know, I just mistakenly not go back and recheck any grammar errors, misspellings. And then after I post it, I notice these errors. And then I find myself deleting that tweet, and then going back and typing it again. So this is something that I'm in favor of personally, and this is a great idea. And it's great that someone like him with his intellect wants to bring something new from his perspective. So this is very much welcome since something like this we've seen on Facebook. Um, now, Jay Sullivan, he's Twitter's VP of consumer product. Uh, he said that an edit button had been the most requested Twitter feature for years, allowing people to alter tweets with mistakes and typos without needing to delete the entire post. Now, however, he did note that without the, without things like time limits, controls, and transparency about what has been edited, edit could be misused to alter the record of the public conversation, which is why the feature will take time and requires plenty of input. Now, when this whole um, Elon Musk Twitter acquisition happened, uh, one of the CEOs, Parag Agrawal, uh, tweeted out April 5 recently saying, I'm excited to share that we're appointing Elon Musk to our board. Through our conversations with Elon in recent weeks, it became clear to us that he would bring great value to our board. He's both a passionate believer and intense critic of the service, which is exactly what we need on Twitter and in the boardroom to make us stronger in the long term. Welcome, Elon. Based on those tweets, uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey did have to say this. I'm really happy Elon is joining the Twitter board. He cares deeply about our world and Twitter's role in it. Parag and Elon both lead with their hearts and they will be an incredible team. So yeah, you know, all the vibes are very good, very positive, and this is a very good step forward. Uh, I think there's also, I found a statement as well. The company will appoint Mr. Musk to the company's board of directors to serve as a class two director with a term expiring at the company's 2024 annual meeting of stockholders, reads the SEC Form 8K. For so long as Mr. Luck, Mr. Musk is serving on the board, and for 90 days thereafter, Mr. Musk will not, either alone or as a member of a group, become the beneficial owner of more than 14.9% of the company's common stock outstanding at such time, including for these purposes economic exposure through derivative, securities, swaps, or hedging transactions. Okay, so this quote I found from another sort of technology website called TechSpot, for those wondering. But what that 14.9% stake means is it's really significant. So if someone like Mr. Musk and his associates, for example, don't have more than 15% of Twitter ownership stake, uh, then he could tender an offer, uh, which means that when a shareholder has a majority stake in the company and and offers shareholders premium price on their holdings. So what I'm trying to say is that he can tender an offer where he can purchase even more of a percentage, more of an ownership stake in Twitter. And this is something that the CEO, Twitter boards, uh, executives simply are trying to avoid. So this is why this partnership 
sounds like a two-year temporary deal. If that, if what I'm saying is clear, that way they're trying to avoid a hostile takeover from Elon Musk or from anyone else. And in this ma manner, um, you know, despite someone like him being active on Twitter, it's a good thing that they're avoiding any sort of uh, controversy or mistakes or any sort of intense situations. Because of that whole edit button that he asked about, and I'm glad that he's very vocal about it, Twitter.com's account said this. <clears throat> now that everyone is asking, yes, we've been working on an edit feature since last year. No, we didn't get that idea from the poll, from a poll. Working off testing with Twitter Blue Labs in the coming months, months to learn what works, what doesn't, and what's possible. I know it sounds so simple, like of course just insert it. I would be more than happy for a Twitter edit button. But I mean like when there's a Twitter thread that things could be edited and changed, and then I get it, like a conversation maybe seen or perceived differently. But because we're common to autotypes, autocorrects, misspellings, mispronunciations, and then everyone will see it differently, react differently, like Oh, no, no, no. I meant to say this and that. That's not what I meant. That's not what happened. So I'm just glad that someone like him, who has been really a big, um, a big innovator, a big leader for Tesla, now has something to contribute for Twitter. And I was remembering, I think it was sometime last year, they had something called Fleet, kind of similar to Facebook, Instagram stories. And I used it one time, but it's unfortunate that it stopped. So hopefully, like, you know, from his own perspective, he brings more to Twitter than what we have seen now going forward. It's been almost a week since Oscars 2022 ceremony. And still, instead of all of us really talking about and crediting all the award winners from screenplay writers Best actresses, best directors like Jane Campion. Yes, finally, I said the name correctly this time. Best international films and so forth, like all the categories. We're still simply talking about Will Smith's Oscar slap on Chris Rock. We're talking about that more than simply him winning the best Oscar for King Richard and being the fifth black actor alongside four other legends. Like I mentioned before, Forrest Whitaker, Cindy Poitier, Denzel Washington, and, oh man, I can't believe a fourth name left my head, but I know I mentioned it. I'm sorry, I forgot. This is so embarrassing. But you get the idea already. Yet this whole conversation with the slap is still talked about. Yes, we know it's assault and, and, and all that, but I also want to mention something. If you haven't read a column written by Karim Abdul-Jabbar, talking about what his actions did more than just hitting someone. I recommend reading it. It's interesting from his perspective on how he thinks like someone like him is sort of an insult to women and all African-Americans. But uh, yeah, on this topic, um, so the Academy Board of Governors, originally we're going to have a April 18 meeting on what would be a possible punishment. So they moved that up to April 8, which is like literally hours or very soon, depending on your time zone, now that I mentioned it. 
uh, a letter the Academy published uh, from President David Rubin was obtained by Variety.com. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to skim through, just say a few things like, you know, just addressing possible sanctions for uh, Will Smith's actions. You know, saying like, okay, moving it up from the 18th to the 8th. Going to speak with him based on his actions, March 27. Uh, may, you know, according to California law and conduct standards. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Providing Mr. Smith 15-day notice uh, when actions could be taken because of his resignation. Suspension or expulsion are no longer a possibility. So finding best interest for all to handle the situation going forward. Arranging a meeting around like 5, 9 a.m. on their time. So, yeah. The concerning part to me is saying expulsion or suspension no longer a possibility. So what does that mean? This is where I'm concerned. Does that mean that the only action they have is to take away his Oscar? I mean, that would be more painful. If I were him, like I'd be shattered mentally and emotionally. I mean, I have no doubt he would be shattered. And it would be a shame, too. I mean, he really did earn the award among all the great nominees for the movie, including uh, Washington for Tragedy of Macbeth as well. So, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know what other sort of action they have left because it would really be a, a crushing shame the way I see it if this would happen to him. And as a result... Of that whole March 27 incident, uh, production for two other movies he's supposed to be working on, like Bad Boys 4 and a Netflix film called Fast and Loose, have halted production for now. A source close to Will Smith saying that he's uh, afraid and very much fearful that he'll be completely canceled because of today's cancel culture. And I understand it. Well, I don't think that's very much likely. Now, I do want to mention something as well. I don't pay attention to The View. I don't watch clips of The View and all that. It's not personal. But Whoopi Goldberg, she serves as one of the board of governors for the Academy. Uh, you know, she made sure that the situation remains calm. Like everyone, even Michael Bay, I mean, he's worked with Will Smith before on two bad boy films. He's tired of the topic as well. But yeah, like Whoopi Goldberg was also saying, like he'll still find work. He'll still find acting work, producing work, and so forth. So he'll be fine in terms of career. His image and popularity, yes, obviously has taken major damage. And so I think now like uh, he has to he has to go through the process of healing himself, I do think, but it's really a shame. I just find the whole situation weird. I mean, he says that G.I. Jane joke. Then the camera cuts to his wife, Jada, rolling her eyes. He looks like he was laughing. I mean, I'm not imagining. Wasn't he laughing? I could have sworn, like, on that video clip, he was laughing for a moment. And maybe because she didn't like the joke, he gets all mad, slaps him. Come on, bro, dude. I mean, he could have handled it. He could have just given a thumbs down or boo. But now, like, if his Oscar is going to be taken away, it'd be a major disappointment. But there has to be something else, at least. Maybe a fine or something. 
that'd be more appropriate than simply being expelled or suspended. All right, guys and gals, it seems that right now we have an ongoing situation with Ezra Miller that's going on between Ezra Miller and Warner Brothers. Right now, recently, with the release of Fantastic Beasts and The Secrets of Dumbledore, since he's playing a character in the film like he has since the first movie, um, and also starring The Flash, which, because of recent actions, has been delayed from 2022 till next year, 2023, or so forth. It's not clear why the film, The Flash, has been delayed once more. But what's been going on with Ezra Miller lately? It's not very good. He was recently arrested for disorderly conduct and harassment in Hawaii. Now, what what seemed to have happened is that like he was in a bar uh, hitting someone from karaoke uh, even he was kicked out of uh, karaoke bars. Uh, this happened from a physical confrontation with Patreons at a bar. So this is like already a list of strange concerning incidents. And this isn't his first one. Uh, before I go forward, like I do want to mention that whole story. It happened in Hawaii. And after that whole thing, you know, he was let out from bail. I think $500,000 or something. Uh he suddenly goes into a sneaks into a room of a couple, um, you know, who have filed a restraining order against Miller, accusing them of assault. He goes into a couple's bedroom, steals wallets, credit cards, debit cards, bank cards, passports, driver license, social security cards, among items. So this is just uh, crazy. Even Miller like threatening to uh, kill them and bury the man's wife so it's just crazy this outburst of behavior on top of a 2011 incident where um, as a passenger he was arrested for drug possession at first he was charged but then no it would seem like uh, probation or something like that even a strange since deleted video of him like choking uh, a woman which is very alarming and there's still a very visible th video of uh, him threatening uh, the KKK on Instagram. So that's not a very good look. Regardless of his good intentions of combating racism and, you know, fighting racism and all that, just threatening people on Twitter, it's not Instagram, it's just not a good look on anyone, you know? So with all these incidents, plus reports of Miller having meltdowns throughout the production set of The Flash. Again, another reason that things don't look good for him. A story broke that Warner Bros, Warner Brothers executives had like an emergency meeting with DC since he is casted in both uh, major IP films. It seems that they agreed to hit pause on any future projects involving Ezra Miller uh, and his behavior shows that he's like someone with heavy drug use, but there's no evidence, no evidence to the contrary. He doesn't like, he's not someone that has a lot of drugs, taken drugs, abused drugs and all that sort of stuff. So it is concerning that there have been reports that he's had frequent and multiple meltdowns during the set of the DC comic books film. Now, as we thought that they would hit pause between with both companies and the actor, now, hours ago, 
And it's a good thing I'm recording this episode because an update uh, was revealed as a source uh, from the studio told IGN.com refuting a report from Rolling Stone saying that that there was no such emergency meeting that took place and dismissing claims as exaggeration. So now it sounds like from reports of an emergency meeting on how to deal with Ezra Miller to nothing really, no sort of traction happening with someone with concerning behavior of emotional outbursts and arrests of attacking people and so forth. I mean, you think that, you know, some sort of, like, I don't know, some kind of confidence would need to happen or I should say like issues of confidence, you know, actions of consequence, you know, there has to be a consequence to those actions. You get what I'm trying to say. Like, uh, it's not looking really good. There's so much talk on this flash movie. The only thing I've heard about the film, more delays. We know there have been COVID delays and then there's incidental delays. So yeah. Um, right now things are not looking good for Ezra Miller just to summarize all of that and it's a shame you know I just wish for the best you know just um, I whether you liked his portrayal of the Flash or not in Zack Snyder's Justice League you just wish for the best at the end of the day right I mean I'm pretty sure his fans do All right, guys and gals, for this topic, this is something that me personally, I'm very excited and looking forward to really talking about because we're like a month away now when you think about it for the premiere of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Other than COVID delays, I'm just glad we're almost here. We've seen trailers by now. There was recently like a short one minute trailer that premiered online. So it's a good thing that there's also like IMAX posters Dolby posters, some really interesting artwork. Honestly, it's amazing to see, um, you know, like in the beginning, uh, the director of the first movie, Scott Derrickson, I think that's his name, Scott Derrickson, was originally meant to come back and direct this film because of creative differences, unfortunately, between Derrickson and Marvel, Kevin Feige, both parties went their separate ways. But this is why I'm more than happy that someone like Sam Raimi got on board as someone who is a fan of uh, comic book films, especially, obviously, Spider-Man, and someone who's great with horror films like Evil Dead and and all those other horror films. He's perfect for this job. I just thought, like, I'm glad he's on the job. He's perfect. And I'm glad, like, he's the one pursuing the project and based on the trailers— I'm very much pleased, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'm excited to see the surprises. So from a recent in- interview you had with Fandango, there have been a bunch of quotes that I have that really caught my attention. But I want to start with the big one before I go with some of the other details. <clears throat> uh, he was asked on, you know, if, um, you know, ahead of the, the Multiverse of Madness film, about Tobey Maguire, you know, his thoughts on Tobey and No Way Home. Of course, Raimi loved seeing Maguire in No Way Home and said, like, he'd be happy to work with Tobey Maguire again with this quote. 
I've come to realize after making Doctor Strange that anything is possible. Really anything in the Marvel Universe. Any team-ups. I love Toby. I love Kirsten Dunst. I think all things are possible. I don't really have a story or a plan. I don't know if Marvel would be interested in that right now. I don't know what their th thoughts are about that. I haven't really pursued that. But it sounds beautiful. Even if it wasn't a Spider-Man movie, I'd, like, I'd love to work with Toby again. In a different role. So he's very enthusiastic and has strong feelings of Tobey Maguire since clearly both collaborated well on the Spider-Man trilogy from the mid, like early to late 2000s. And you know, the funny thing is like last night, even those films were airing again on NBC Max. Yeah, NBC Max. So uh, the timing was just strangely coincidental. So I think both uh, Maguire and Raimi collaborating again. I mean, that's something I'd like to see. So going forward, regarding MCU films he may have seen before, prior to working on this um, Doctor Strange film, he, um, he said like, well, since you well, since you got to give a story, I'm going to give you a two-part answer. I had seen Iron Man, The First Avengers, Black Panther, and Doctor Strange, and little clips of the other movies. They've made 28 movies. I've only seen four or five. So I'll say not that familiar. That's one part. By the way, I loved what I saw, but not that familiar. But part two is I was a giant fan of the Marvel comic books of the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. So I was super familiar with the characters and their stories and their interactions. That's what the Marvel movies are based on. So that's my answer. So yeah, Sam Raimi, despite being a huge Marvel comic book fan, he hasn't really seen a lot of MCU films, like maybe four or five, and he has seen some of the bigger ones. I'm sure he's meant, uh, regarding Iron Man, I'm assuming he's saying the first Iron Man film, which is a classic. And the same for the first Avengers film. Black Panther really a, a cultural phenomenon as well. Now, what are the surprises? Are there any surprises we're going to get? Can he tease any more surprises like we got from No Way Home? I guess I would say that Spider-Man No Way Home broke open the idea that characters from the multiverse could visit our universe. But this is the first time that our characters from our universe will go out into the multiverse and experience other universes. So... It's going to be a continuation, but that, I think, is one of the biggest appeals. Finding other realities, and how they rhyme with our own, or how they are completely the opposite, or variations therefore, thereof, excuse me. I think therein lies the interest of this picture. Okay. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing different variations of Strange and Wanda, and uh, yeah, a new character was teased, uh, America Chavez. I was going to say American Chavez, America Chavez. I don't know the name of the young actress who plays her, but she's supposedly like an interdimensional hero going from dimension to dimension. And the trailer, we saw like a big giant creature. It really looked so much like Shuma Gorath, but because of naming rights, for some strange reason, that's not one of the villains in the movie. It's It's kind of weird. I don't even understand the whole issue, but whatever. At least there is some one-eyed octopus giant alien creature that looks like Shuma Gorath. Now clearly when asked about Patrick Stewart, his voice 
can be heard in the trailer, he was not allowed to say anything, not a word about any given comment on Patrick Stewart. So clearly, by trying to hide this secret, to me, it seems like he will come back as Professor X. I at least hope so. Or if it's a different character, that's fine. But with the multiverse being open, one character or another is something uh, I think is a possibility for Patrick Stewart. When asked who he considers as a movie's antagonist, that's an interesting one. Well, there's inter iterations of our characters throughout the multiverse. So if I were to say strange, I'm not really supposed to answer this question, but I might be saying altered strange. Same with Wanda or Mordor, as in Baron Mordor. But I would say at different times, all of the above. And that makes sense because these are flawed characters in the film. I think like Baron Mordor played by, man, this name is so hard to pronounce. Chiwetel Ujilafur. Okay, I'm not going to try. That was just difficult. Like, I remember him from The Martian. Yeah, The Martian when he collaborated with Ridley Scott and um, Matt Damon in that 2015 movie, which was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I, I like his thought, like saying with these characters, they're not perfect. They're flawed. They make mistakes for the right reasons and they're kind of villains themselves. So would Sam Raimi come back and direct another MCU film? Hmm. This answer I like. Absolutely. It's like the world's best toy box to be able to play at Marvel. I'd love to come back and tell another tale especially with the great management they've got there. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Sure, working with someone like Kevin Feige is not always easy when a director has their own vision and producer of a multi-billion dollar movie franchise has their own storylines planned, storyboards, any sort of teasers planned. But I mean, it, it, you know, at least it's good. At least things sound pretty good. Um... His favorite version of Benedict Cumberbatch playing Doctor Strange. Uh, what is his favorite version of Cumberbatch playing Strange, I should say. Um, no, I don't have a favorite. I really like them interacting with each other very much. I think that was the most interesting thing to see Benedict Cumberbatch bring out a part of his personality that was slightly unique to create one of his altered selves. Or to watch a Lizzie maybe bring a darker part of herself out to create an alter version of herself. The slightest tweaks they could come up with made it very interesting for me. So I, I like the answers he gave and I like his perspective on, you know, how he thought and believed that the actors really brought more to the role than just one version of their main character. And I'm definitely looking forward to see like how much versatility and variety there is for their characters and just seeing how they're not perfect and how they're not, how they're very much flawed at all. Can this be like a 10 out of 10 film? Maybe not, but I do think there's potential for this movie to be like an 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10. Now, if it's a 7 out of 10, that doesn't mean it's bad at all. It's just maybe like, not a step up from the first film. The first film I was fine with. I'd say like 6 out of 10. Maybe if you're more generous, 7 out of 10. Doctor Strange in 2016. A 7 out of 10 for me in some ways, not so bad. So 
my expectations are high for this film to be much more exciting, much more greater, especially with the amount of time in films uh, Benedict Cumberbatch has had the opportunity to play and star as Doctor Strange throughout the years. So recently, when Sony announced on their blog post about the PlayStation Plus tiers, now it was meant, assumingly, with some positive reaction, some minor criticisms based on the price tags, different prices of the different tiers, and what's offered. It's at least a good thing to me that they're making more of an effort with the digital platforms of using backwards compatibility, bringing older games from older generations back. If there was one reaction that surprised everyone is that the their second handheld, the PS Vita, their gaming library of Vita games not coming back at all. And I understand that based on the commercial failure of the Vita, I think selling 14 million, something like that. So probably their biggest failure, unfortunately. So one of the issues that some people had is that regarding the PS3, it did come with the caveat of like their PS3 games being played through their uh, cloud streaming service known as PlayStation Now. Now, so understandably, it didn't sit well with everyone uh, wanting to play a lot of those games, download them into their PS5. I get it, requiring a stable internet connection. Or for some territories, uh, PlayStation Deluxe as well. So it's sort of the same thing, but for different regions, different countries. <clears throat> and yeah, like, it's not exactly shocking. It seems like nowadays more than ever, trying to emul emulate the PlayStation 3 is difficult. You know, this is like a mistake that I think is haunting Sony for how they um, build it up and kind of develop their PlayStation 3 architecture system known as the cell processor when when it was revealed in 2005, but was released later in 06. So, um, and the Xbox 360 was out in 2005. And it, it was meant with a lot of skepticism because of how difficult it is for developers to work on the system and code and program their games, which is why the 360 has always been looked at as the easier system. And look, let me be clear on something. I'm not anti-Sony. I don't have any issue with Sony games, Sony pictures, or anything. I'm just mentioning some of the business decisions at that time. The leadership for SIE, Sony Interactive Entertainment, was completely different that time for PlayStation. Now, now with Jim Ryan, head of the franchise, head of the organization, before Jim Ryan, there was Sean Layden. And even before Sean Layden, who put the brand in the right direction from the early mistakes of PS3, there were other people in charge. I think one of them, of course, was Ken Kudaragi still on board. And there were other people as well that helped with the you know, architecture of the cell processor for PS3. It was supposed to be really innovative and powerful. And it was, but it was just extremely difficult. And to make things worse, I think like a 20 gigabyte model in 2006 was like $500 and an 80 gigabyte PS3 costed $600. Obviously more expensive than Xbox 360 released one year prior in November 05, 2005 as well. So it's just crazy when you think about it in perspective. A PlayStation 3 in 2006 
costed $600 in comparison to a PlayStation 5 or an Xbox Series X costing $500? I mean, that's just absurd and kind of atrocious as well. So there were some early mistakes regarding with how Sony, uh, the heads and the CEO kind of handled the PS3. It's a console I like. Now, for what it's worth, I have the super slim model. I, I know there's like that disc tray. And I know that also, in my opinion, the slim is more aesthetically pleasing. But I'm fine with the super, super slim for a couple of reasons. How it fits into the entertainment stand, the size, and also how I can easily open the slot, take out the hard drive and replace it. So that's a good thing for me as well. Since then, like there have been many of the classic major exclusives for the PS3 that have been remastered for the PS4. A console that developers uh, saw as much easier to work with and develop, you know. And unfortunately, regarding the remastering process of games, whether it's Uncharted or especially The Last of Us or Wipeout or um, God of War 3, just a few examples, it could it took a lot of time, patience, resources, and seriously, the hard work for them was exhausting. I mean, it would have been more simpler. The job would have been less difficult if instead it was just simply like re-releasing as like a port or updating the game code up to the modern standards as an easier way instead of remastering again and having people buy them. Now, again, like if you buy them again at a much cheaper discount, that's okay. At least it's not like your money's being ripped off. But I mean, like, you know, the best example I can think of, The Last of Us, it got remastered. When it did, it was amazing, perfect. 1080p, 60fps, critically acclaimed, one of the best for the PS4. And then when they did the part two towards the end of the generation, um, and also around since like PS3, PS5, sorry, when PS5 came out, updated the game so that it can be ran at 60fps, but I think at 1800p or 1440p resolution as seen on the PS4 Pro. So it's good that there's been a much more simpler way for developers on the PS4 system or even on the Xbox One instead of, you know, because they're both new gen, next gen, last gen systems, similar uh, specs, architecture, making it easier for developers to sort of like upgrade the game, of course, through free next gen upgrades or update them to code better resolution, textures, lighting, shadows, frame rate, all that sort of stuff. There's still the remaster, but now there's just a much easier way instead of making it so exhausting because of the hardware inside is different. Look, I'm not an expert in what is that, how teraflops and gigahertz and CPU and GPU and all that sort of stuff. But just like reading, reading the specs, it, I mean, it's clear how one is improvement over the other but i mean like um while i do think the remastering effort is worth it it would have been much easier if things are different and it shows microsoft's commitment now to preserving classics we've seen now with the series x and even series s i know that the series s has no disk drive but you know even with the series x it goes like all four generations not just for the new games 
obviously Xbox One games. You know, if you're someone that buys an Xbox Series X and you just want to go ahead and buy a bunch of Xbox One games, you're not wrong. You know, it's really the best way to play all these Xbox One games. Much more stable frame rates and much better and cleaner resolutions and all the taking advantage of the extra horsepower. It's much better way. Plus, with the SSD inside, much, much better loading times. Less exhausting loading times. Like, less than a minute, you know? Or even, not even 30 seconds for some games. Like, major long open world games taking like a minute and a half and you're just waiting for like, what? 30 seconds, 20 seconds, for example, for loading times. So that's a major, major advantage. Why I think it's a smart idea just buying the console and then buying some old games. And of course, even like the Xbox 360 games, you know, a lot of them are major classics and, you know, golden hits as well. And with the One X system, like some of them have been like uh, updated to maybe stable performances, better lighting, just higher resolution. So those games in some ways have been updated to sort of like they still look like something from 7th gen, but just make them a little bit better in some ways. The graphics look the same, but just better resolution and all that good stuff. So I'm not trying to sound like anti-Sony. I just think some of the decisions made in the past have sort of haunted them. And it's hurting them in a way that when they want to you know, bring older generation of games forward for nostalgia, the task for them has become more complicated and more difficult than it should be. Whereas Microsoft has found solutions. While not every game from Xbox and Xbox 360, the first two consoles, not every single game has been backwards compatible for the newer systems. At least a huge list, and there's a huge library of them now available so of all the console manufacturers credit goes to microsoft for making more of the effort at, at least like i'm glad that sony made this ps plus tiers announcement but it is strange like for them while placing them in different tiers and one costing more and more than the other the task for them has been really more difficult than it should be, but now they have to live with the consequences of what those before them have done and the mistakes that have been made. Even with the PS Vita, I like the Vita, but even the complaints of the proprietary memory sticks costing a lot of money, I agree with them. They're right. I mean, all those people getting upset at the memory stick costs are right. And that's why I think the Vita sales really hurt them bad. But at least I hope there isn't any sort of anti-consumer arrogant decision-making with PS5 going forward. There have been some questionable moments here and there, but at least they've rectified it. Still, it would be ashamed if, you know, in terms of decision-making and, you know, business acumen that Sony goes backwards. It, it really would be a shame based on the goodwill they've built on the PlayStation 4. All right, guys and gals. Um, 
for this final segment, just for entertainment reasons, I found kind of a funny TikTok video. It's related to uh, Capcom having a funny, assuming way, amusing way of promoting uh, Monster Hunter Rise before it came out on the Switch and January was out for Windows. <laughs> Some video with like puppets or something. It's kind of uh, amusing and it's like for 46 seconds normally I wouldn't do this sort of thing so I'm kind of fearful of copyright claim if so uh, I'll try to resolve it so yeah here comes some <laughs> a couple of strange puppets I don't understand Cantonese, but that's fine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't even know what's happening, but it's just kind of funny. <laughs> okay, I know it looked like a waste of time, but it was just kind of funny how they were promoting a... Uh, I think like an open world RPG action game with puppets. So I don't know. I just thought that was kind of funny. I just thought just to show you for entertainment reasons. That's all. All right. Yeah, we've made it to the end of this episode for the Films and Pixels podcast, episode 14. That is all for today. If you have watched and listened, from beginning to end, thank you so much. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the YouTube channel, like and follow the social media websites, and leave the comments. Thank you so much. It would mean a lot to me if you've done so, as this does help grow an independent channel like mine. So yeah, any good comments you have would be very much appreciated. Peace out from now until next time, and thank you very much.